we really think about holistically how to provide population health and wellness, there is a civic undertone that simply cannot be ignored. With all the buzz of new innovations, it's easy to forget that healthcare is a people business in need of technology, not a technology business in need of people. From the organizers of health, we bring you Live at Vive, a podcast where we embark on curious conversations with prominent speakers, experts, and innovators in the trenches of healthcare. Join hosts, Dr. Gotham Gulati, Jessica Shepard, and myself, Jordan Schlain, as we seek to uncover the truth behind the inner workings of our fractured healthcare system and ultimately how we can fix it together. On today's episode, we bring you Anika Gardenhire, where we discuss health inequities. Anika serves as the Chief Digital Officer for Centene Corporation, a diversified healthcare enterprise providing a portfolio of government-sponsored healthcare programs focusing on underinsured and uninsured individuals to more than 26 million Americans. In this role, Anika is responsible for leading the Digital Solutions and Products Organization, where she oversees business capabilities that are enabled by technology. I'm your host, Dr. Jessica Shepard. Let's get started. Welcome to another session at the official podcast of Vive. We are excited to bring you all the best that we have here during this week of health and technology. And today with us, we have Anika Gardenhire, who serves as the chief digital officer for Centene Corporation. This is a diversified healthcare enterprise that provides a portfolio of government-sponsored healthcare programs focusing on underinsured and uninsured individuals to more than 26 million Americans. I am here with my lovely host, Gotham, who we spend time together, a lot of time together. And yes, we others. do, and I love it. Hi, everyone. <laughs> so thank you for being with us today. I think I would like to start out with looking at that certain population and how you, as the chief digital officer, somewhat brings to life healthcare in a way that might be different? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. I am humbled and privileged to do the work that we do at Centene and um, specifically the focus that we have on underserved populations. When I think about the way that we think differently, there are a couple of things. One, historically, just when we think about technology space and especially the healthcare technology space, oftentimes tools are developed for middle America and above. And so when we think about underserved populations, I think first and foremost, it's really thinking about what are those, what I would consider sometimes low tech, but mostly no tech (laughs) ways to actually support this population. And it doesn't typically mean truly no tech. It means how do we think about data and ambient data in a different way? How do we think about engagement in a way that might not actually require someone to engage with us? And then it's also dispelling myths, right? This population doesn't have access to X and Y, which is typically not true. (laughs) And people not necessarily doing the research to actually understand where the access is to digital tools and technologies, endpoint devices, those types of things. And so One of the ways that we think differently, quite frankly, is just starting from a place of a desire to understand, right? Seek to know the population that we serve. 
And we're very fortunate that we believe that healthcare is local. And so many of our employees live beside the populations that we serve. And so we have the opportunity to simply know them in a different way. And I think that starting with that desire to understand helps us then develop products and solutions that really serve the population better. Do you think that there is a hesitation to digital technology and understanding how it's used or utilizing it itself within that population? Or what may some of the struggles be or obstacles in, like you said, that when it's developed, it may not be developed for a certain population, but also within that population, what are their hesitations? So a couple of things. One, I think there are definitely trust issues, right? And so as we think about historically how we might have served these populations, there hasn't always been appropriate representation, quite frankly, appropriate trust between these populations and the healthcare system writ large. We have opportunities to seek to mend, quite frankly, those uh, barriers to trust. If we look at what happened during the COVID pandemic, we saw significant barriers to access to care. We saw significant inequities. What are we actually doing to remedy that from a, a healthcare enterprise, healthcare sector perspective that would actually make it so that these populations specifically want to engage with us and trust that we have their best interest at heart? And I think we have work to do to make that realistic. And then I think sometimes, too, when we think about, you know, how tools are developed, there are significant economic challenges. But I'd be very honest in saying that from my perspective, I think there's somewhat economic misunderstanding. I think a lot of times we think that, you know, the economics are not in a certain place. But quite frankly, most of economic mobility happens in the patients that we serve and in the members that we serve. And so because there's so much economic mobility and economic transaction, there are opportunities that I think oftentimes from a digital health perspective that we don't think about. And I think we have opportunities as you know, owners of having the responsibility of really serving that that population and as bearers and shepherds of health information and health data for that population to better educate digital health holistically, the healthcare community, and how we can specifically develop for this population. And so part of that looks like personas that are more representative. Part of it looks like gathering data and ethnographic research that is different. You know, part of it looks like living with and asking in a different way. And so I, I think the tools are there. It's also making sure that the investment understanding is also there. So I'm, I'm glad you took us there because I was just about to take us to that direction there. Yeah. I'm going to put a little bit of my product innovation hat on. Yeah. And when we talk about solutions, there's obviously an individual on the other end utilizing that solution. Absolutely. And so we blanketly talk about, you know, underinsured or uninsured or uh, and underserved. And you mentioned the word persona. Can, can we drill into that a little bit? Like for what sure. are the very, just for those listening to get a better understanding of how we develop solutions for them, who are those specific populations and how do you understand which ones to address or what, what's, what's sort of the, the prioritization that happens there? Absolutely. And, you know, part of it is I think personas are super important, but I also think that it's really hard to distill in a population down to six representative phenotypes. So I also just mm. sort of mind people to be careful of the trap. But I think when we think about, you know, what those personas are, some of the differences are, you know, there is the Medicaid mom right, who is on, you know, Medicaid and might have a child on Medicaid. There is the chronically ill 
pediatric patient. There is the chronically ill adult patient. There is the long-term care patient or member who might be dealing with a chronic illness, but also is inside of a long-term skilled nursing facility and really has acute challenges, even though they are long-term and chronic conditions. And so I think that those members come in with different backgrounds. And some of those members are economically challenged. Quite frankly, some of them are not. Some of those members are middle America who happen to also have this challenge. Mm. And so I think sometimes there is, to your point, this broad sort of shadow cast on what we think the definition is. And there is a Medicaid mom who is working very hard, who you know also might be a student, quite frankly, might be a graduate student. If we think about what the actual poverty line is, quite frankly, if you're living on a you know PhD student salary, then you are might be in this population. And so I think sometimes we cast like this really big cloud and, and sort of blanket connotation and understanding of who these members are. And they're often, quite frankly, just inaccurate. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I just look in my local community, like it's a complete mix of we tend to think that if they're at the same school as my children's school, that they're Mm -hmm. all in similar backgrounds or similar situations. And it's just not the case, right? right? So it's really hard to pinpoint exactly because they look and and talk and and, and work and live exactly in the same place that we do. They just come from different situations and different scenarios. And I think understanding the individuality of that is extremely important in developing solutions. I'm curious about in coming up with treatments versus prevention. Mm-hmm. For many of these populations, prevention is oftentimes a very difficult thing to address because mm-hmm. it requires behavioral change. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when we start drilling into some of the upstream issues that are occurring in terms of like food deserts that might might be there, accessibility or affordability, I'm curious, how do you think about some of the solutions that you produce? Is it mostly the downstream trying to get them the treatments or do you also focus on some of the preventative elements of? Definitely both. You know, from an organizational perspective, we think about health and we think about the drivers of health. So inclusive of the population that we serve, we are thinking about what the drivers of health are and how do you support the the drivers of health. And so some of that is, you know, economic challenge. Some of it is food deserts. Quite frankly, some of it is trying to get, for example, our Native American population to lean into Western medicine in a way that doesn't make sense. Mm. So some of it is just, quite frankly, a lack of cultural understanding and providing cultural literacy Mm -hmm. and culturally competent care. And so I think we have to think, to your point, when we think about the personas, we have to think about those individuals very specifically. And it's because we have sometimes this prescription in our head right? This definition of what good and what the definition of treatment looks like that is ultimately our downfall and failure in how we actually serve this population. And so I think first we have to truly seek to understand. And then once we do understand, we can think about what solutions really are. But in our head, sometimes I think we start to design the solution and the definition of the solution is to make it quote unquote, the definition of success is to look more like this. And we have that definition defined. But my question is, is that the population's definition of success? Is that the population's definition of goal? Is that, you know, their deterministic treatment is going to get them to the place that we've defined? Or is there a place that the population has defined that their deterministic treatment should take them that we are not open to? That, to me, is, is the biggest problem that, quite frankly, we often have, is that instead of asking the question, if we think about our tribal populations, 
Is there a person who serves that tribal population who has a really good understanding of the culture and could be more of a care navigator for when they should seek care in the way that we define it versus, to your point, preventative health and wellness. And that preventative health and wellness might look a really specific way to that population that we need to lean into versus attempt to get people to pivot from. One thing I've noticed about the corporation is that they are committed to driving innovation, obviously through diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. But you guys do have women who represent 76% Mm -hmm. of your employee pool Was that by design or is that something that was just recognized in the way that you look at engaging your programs with a certain community and and how to build those? Yeah, so I I think it's in the DNA and the fabric of the organization. And the reason that I say that is because one of the things that's really core and germane to Centina as an organization is that we believe that care is local. And so when you believe that care is local, you're often building programs and health plans in those local communities. And so you're hiring very similarly to the population that you will serve. You are hiring from those geographic locations. And so I think because of that, we think about things like where do people live? How are we serving them? Is there a representative understanding and representative mix of the population that we serve? But you will hear, for example, our CEO in Investor Day talked about sitting with one of our health plans and talking about our foster care program. And she was having a conversation and asking about the program itself, and they said that it was better. And several of the members sitting around that table were foster parents. And so they are engaged in a really different way in making the global foster care and foster care care program better for that population. And I think that's how you get to a place that is highly representative. I think that's very uh, amazing that you're able to accomplish that because I, I do believe that there are many companies that want to exemplify that diversity and equity of the community that they represent, but it doesn't always show up in the representation around the table or the employees. Now, that's, there's, th- there's a great quote that I heard. Yeah. I always butcher these things, but I think this is how it goes. <laughs> we can piece it together. I, <laughs> I heard somebody say just recently, nothing for us unless it's with us. Yes. Correct. Right? Yes. Like you got to include them at the seat at the Absolutely. table. Absolutely. But it's, it's and funny have a voice, that we not all... just a seat at the table, have a voice Absolutely. at the table. Absolutely. Exactly. So it's funny, you know, even around this table right now, we have someone who works for a company that, you know, definitively shows that someone who preaches that every day and you obviously who believes that firmly and yet we still don't see that represented. I think especially when it comes to health and health outcomes, longevity, aging, every community really has a different representative of or narrative of how that looks in their community. Mm -hmm. And so there can never be one template when we think of healthcare, yet we pretty much, I would say for the most part, still do follow we uh, like one template. Oh yeah, I mean they're they're great. They look great on but paper. But sometimes some of the the most non obvious things can have the greatest impact. When mm-hmm. I recently heard an individual, I, I'm, I don't remember the name of the, of the of the firm itself or the company itself, but they figured out that if you can get individuals in these underserved communities to vote, mm-hmm. right? And and the question that was really interesting, they asked the question, "Why didn't you vote?" And they said, "I didn't know I could." Mm. Not that they didn't want to or didn't have, I didn't know I could. I didn't know I was Mm. allowed to have a voice in this whole thing. If there are certain towns, for example, that have, you know, smokestacks for manufacturing facilities or things like that, those are policy driven. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. They they know that they can get approval to be in those cities because those are the people that aren't necessarily voting. Absolutely. But simply getting them to vote mm-hmm. gives them a voice at the table that ultimately can then drive. Mm-hmm. Because if they know if that community is voting, all of a sudden, those mm-hmm. plants aren't going to be in there and there's going to be no toxic pollution that's driving all of these chronic diseases in the town. Which clearly shows how much politics does have a... Uh, undercurrent when it comes to healthcare, which is exactly Absolutely. why when you saw, you know, uh, Stacey Abrams, not to go completely political, but I do think it does lend to the ability for the community to understand mm-hmm. how much they have and say for their own health care. Well, I think it's it's ingrained, quite frankly, in the definition of population health, right? And so if we really think about holistically how to provide population health and wellness, there is a civic undertone that simply cannot be ignored, right? So when the biggest driver of your health outcome is zip code, you can't ignore the civic implications of that. And so no matter where your, you know, quote unquote politics lie, like those are just facts. And so to your point, if you think about, you know, what really drives pediatric asthma, you know, what really drives some of our underlying really significant chronic condition, we know that there are environmental factors to that. And so if you want to provide whole health and wellness, then there are policy drivers and advocacy that have to be a part of the conversation. What are some of the the innovations that you guys, I mean, give us a, a handful of, of examples uh, sure. that you've implemented. So there are a couple of things. I lean toward the work that we have been doing from a drivers of health perspective and really um, leaning into how we assess drivers of health. And we specifically lean into that terminology (laughs) around drivers of health, but actually doing the work to capture those assessments and utilizing that data to then drive health outcomes to really put that data in the hands of our care managers to be able to allow them to respond in a different way. The work that we do on the local front to integrate and support CBOs. And so it's really interesting. We think about sort of data sharing and oftentimes we think about data sharing for, you know, hospital and provider organizations and payers. And we leave out like that other 80% where wellness happens. And so how you think about community-based organizations, you know, can I put in a referral to Meals on Wheels and can the, the loop be closed so that I actually understand whether or not the service was provided and how we really actually think about how that shows up and the impact that that has on care, I think is highly innovative. And there is, right, the really nice, you know, through AI and ML, and we do great work around bias checking in our algorithms that I think is quite frankly unmatched to some others because of the population that we serve. And we have great work in synthetic data because of the population that we serve. But when I think about, quite frankly, innovation, I think about it at the point of friction. And at the point of friction for our members often looks like, did I get my meal? Do I have housing? Or my claims paid? Do I have the ability to to feed, house, and support my family? And so when I think about innovation, for me, it's always where does it show up at the member's fingertips? For me, that looks like things like, you know, My Health Pays and Start Smart for Your Baby and our ability to provide care for maternal members at an earlier stage because we have this great, quote unquote, innovation behind us. I love that. I think that Centene really understands the fundamental part of community health and 
you've said that here, even with transforming the health of the community. So I, I really recognize that because instead of saying, usually we say the individual or the person, you really got, you guys really focused on community and then said one person at a time. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, even from a physician standpoint, recognizing that when we think of global health or even mm -hmm. just public health, we always do focus on the community. And I think if we did focus on that a little bit more, we would actually see better health outcomes in the individuals. Mm -hmm. So with that, we are so delighted that you spent time with us, Anika, here at the official podcast. And um, we look forward to, I mean, I have learned so much you know, even in, you know, the individual uh, introspection of a physician to say, what am I lending to the actual community is, is a great way to lead. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you it's for having fun. me. It's been really fun. Thanks for listening. If you're still here, I'm hoping it's because you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. We'll be releasing new episodes regularly. And to stay on top of the hottest topics, simply subscribe to Live at Vive wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. This podcast is a product produced and mixed by Well Played Media in partnership with Health, the organizers of the annual Vive conference. Remember to subscribe. And if you have an idea for a non-boring show in health or medicine, email us your idea at hello at wellplayed.health. Are you interested in seeing and meeting many of the guests we interview on this show? Be sure to check out viveevent.com and join us at next year's conference. See you next time.